0: and welcome to the Science is Gray podcast. I'm your host, Serena Farb, and as a former science teacher with a biochemistry degree and passionate justice activist, I believe that social progress and justice depend on open scientific dialogue and debate, even when it's unpopular or controversial. On this podcast, we have in-depth conversations exploring scientific issues from a holistic perspective that allows room for nuance, understanding bias, ethical dilemmas, and reaching into the gray areas of science and ethics in society. In today's episode, I am honored to be speaking with one of my longtime heroes and an absolute pioneer in the field of plant-based nutrition, Dr. T. Colin Campbell. Dr. Campbell is a Jacob Gold Sherman Professor Emeritus of Nutritional Biochemistry at Cornell University and has spent more than 60 years studying the connection between diet and disease. He is best known for the China Study, one of the most comprehensive studies of health and nutrition ever conducted. He has written several best-selling books and is the founder of the T. Colin Campbell Center for Nutrition Studies and the Plant-Based Nutrition Certification Program in partnership with eCornell. In this episode, we discuss reductionism in science and how such an approach is actually undermining our understanding of health and nutrition. All right. Uh, Hi, Dr. Campbell. Thank you so much for joining us today on this podcast. I'm really looking forward to this conversation.
1: I'm pleased to be here.
0: You talk a lot about the problems of reductionist thinking in science and nutrition. Can you maybe for someone who doesn't really know what that means, explain uh, what reductionist thinking looks like and uh, why you think it's a problem?
1: Well, I think I should probably first give credit to the person who, to my knowledge, may have been the first to say this kind of thing. Was Aristotle? The whole is greater than the sum of its parts. It's a concept that most everyone, when you stop and think about it, uh, sort of understand it. Uh, you know, the whole is comprised of a whole lot of parts. And whatever system we happen to be talking about, I happen to be interested in the nutrition topic at the moment. Uh, but in any case, uh, all these little parts. What we do in science, and particularly in my area of science as well, uh, we take out one of these little parts and then we try to pretend that's the whole. It's crazy. You know, the story about the elephant being in the room and everybody is, is only seeing maybe a leg or a trunk or something else and calling mm. it a tree or whatever. Now, <laughs> I mean, it's the same concept. It's been, that concept has been around a long time. But, and in, in, uh, so I call that philosophy or that practice Uh, reductionism, of course, as Mm usually said. So in nutrition, to be specific, uh, we tend to think that nutrition is best defined by what all these individual nutrients are doing. We study them very carefully. We study, you know, uh, their chemical structures. We study, we we determine how much should we consume of that particular nutrient, if you will, maybe for different ages and different conditions. And and we get into this kind of detail. and also that we get into the biochemistry of the nutrient in, in, in question. We study, you know, where, how does it get digested and how does it get absorbed? and it goes here and there, every place else. And what are all the different various biochemical reactions that it triggers? So we do that and we look at these things in isolation. And I know I've got a couple of colleagues, I won't name their names, but spend their whole careers just on working on, let's say one mechanism.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Because when we get into these parts, we always discover that part becomes a whole. Because it itself may appear to be, because of the limitation of our knowledge, it appears to be a part, definable part. But we start studying it in greater depth, maybe under a microscope, maybe under an electron microscope. We find that that part is also a whole. So, so it goes, it keeps on, we we dig deeper and deeper and deeper and we get into more and more trouble you know, by just getting into such isolated uh, things. And then we pretend those parts, you know, are acting independently Mm
2: -hmm.
1: or not. They're not. They Those parts, if you take out a part, let's say a nutrient in this case, take out a nutrient and test it all by itself, Mm
2: -hmm.
1: it has a certain kind of activity. But it turns out oftentimes those activities that we observe when they're independent is is sometimes exactly opposite what they are, they appear to do in food. That's yeah. one of the treacherous that's one of the treacherous paths we take, you know by making that assumption. So um, holism to me is just all of these first off, just simply acknowledging that there's infinite numbers of parts mm-hmm. whether they're talking about in, independent entities like a nutrient or whether we're talking about the mechanisms of action that they might, might be participating in, or, or even further talking about the various kinds of outcomes, like what kind of disease is this affecting. So throughout the whole process, from beginning to the end, you're always focusing on parts. And then I, I discovered this when I was younger in my career, that, 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 that idea is presumed to be called science. hmm In other words, (laughs) the concept of science has been almost defined
0: by by reductionism,
1: reductionism. and that has cost us immensely in this field. It only creates a lot of confusion, as I'm sure you can appreciate. Uh Everybody has their favorite part, or they have their favorite interest in using that part in some way. Right, sell the part, if you you will, make some money on it. So that's the state of affairs. It's tragic. It's disgusting mm. to be honest with you. And uh, yeah, I, I did, I've been at this here for some time. I finally, as, as my career went along, we I, we did re- we did reductionist science. And, and sometimes people challenge me, well, well, you say you did reductionist science earlier in your career. Yes, we did. I'm caught up, but just like everyone else, we start looking specifically at a neutral, We try to figure out what does it do, and so forth, and so on. But the interesting thing, I, I got into. I, Using that, going on that trajectory, what I learned was that, let's say a nutrient doesn't have one, doesn't affect one mechanism. Mm -hmm. You see a whole bunch of them. And then all of a sudden you see all these different mechanisms, they all converge to create the same response. And so that opens up a whole new world.
0: Yeah.
1: It's just all different.
0: So, okay. A question that I've had for a long time, just in general, and I... I'm very much on the same page with you. Um, I taught high school chemistry and environmental science for a couple of years. And I really thought it was important to talk to my students about like how studies and science can be biased simply not by actually, you know, faking data or anything like that, but by picking one outcome, like you can make smoking look good. If you look at weight loss instead of cancer rates, right? Like you, you pick that one outcome and you only talk about that in your paper and you can make something look good or bad. I mean, that's, I think
2: that's,
0: (laughs) so yeah, definitely try to talk about that. But one thing that comes up that I've seen from a lot of plant-based doctors and some others recently is um, some pushback. Like they agree And they think that mechanisms are never worthwhile studying. And what, so I'm just curious, like a question I've had is, is there ever a time when say we have a theoretical pathway or a mechanism of operation and we have no data in the real world to either debunk that or support it? Should we pay attention to mechanisms? Like, is it worthwhile considering that? Or do you think mechanisms are never, um, never turn out to be what we think they might be?
1: That is an excellent question. Really excellent question. Uh, uh, th- there's a nuance to that sort <laughs> of uh, thinking, if you will. Um, yeah, I say reduction. I don't. I don't uh, just dismiss reduction of research. Not at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, what what reductionist research or the the observations that we acquire in that circumstance, they turn out to be the 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 architecture of the whole. Okay. They, tend to give up, they give granularity they give granularity to the idea. And that's really helpful. I mean, that's, that's actually how I sort of got to where I got to. I was in sort of reduction mm-hmm. in science, in a sense, and all of a sudden you realize, okay, now you are looking at all these different parts, what if, and this is the question sort of asked, what if all those different parts, seemingly independent, what if they all end up with the same point in exactly the same direction?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So you see how that, in that case, that was very informative. It, you know, this it nutrient I'll, I'll give one one case in point where which is the focus of my research with protein -huh protein animal protein when uh, it's consumed uh, and for we i spent about i don't know it was 12 15 years something like that uh, and lots of uh, phd students doing doctoral dissertations on so one part at a time uh-huh. one at a time finally got to a point where i was looking to but like, for a new student I was talking with well, Leslie, where we're gonna go here. I didn't even know what I didn't know, but you know, I was <laughs> trying to think about this. I said, wait a minute, all these all these mechanisms that were now so far, they all all pointing the same direction. Why do we want to study another mechanism? So that you know, that kind of uh, just forced me to think, well, why why are they all going the same direction?
2: but
1: mm-hmm. so like, nonetheless, each of those mechanisms that enables me to defend quite frankly, the proposition that the effect of protein in this case, animal protein particularly, it de- it allows me to defend a proposition for a lot of people. Oh here's a way it look like it does this or does that? Oh yeah, what what Oh yeah, it does this, it does that. You know finally, I can lead another person into this discussion They say, oh my God, what, which one matters? I say they all matter. Standing alone, they, <laughs> they, don't, they don't do the job. Mm-hmm. Which is just so that you know, reductionism uh, it's like the I, I, I sometimes about uh, the uh, a brush stroke in a great painting, a single stroke, uh-huh, or in a symphony, or stuff like that, in great musical production. One note, you know that doesn't describe the effect that we feel when we see a great painting or see a great we hear a great uh, musical composition.
0: That makes sense. Yeah. It's just something I've, I've wondered a lot about myself because especially I see these debates online all the time between nutrition experts on, on social media. And, um, and so like, I think this was motivated by, I saw someone who was saying try, uh, it was a plant-based doctor who was trying to debunk like nutrition misinformation that they were seeing from other people online. And their main way of debunking it was this is just a theoretical mechanism and they're not important. And I was kind of wondering, I was like, I mean, I think I probably am going to agree with this plant-based doctor. Um, I tend to think that a lot of the other stuff out there is misinformation, but is that a valid way to debunk it? Just being like, well, it's just a mechanism. It's just theoretical. uh, So that's probably not. And I think this was about iron Someone was trying to claim, and I, I, this is not something I actually have read the research on or know a lot about, but it was some person trying to claim that, um, anemia was actually like iron overload and that we don't need to consume that much iron. And it had to do with like this pathway or something. And so then a plant-based doctor was like, no, we need iron and that's misinformation. Um, and and I see a lot of people saying like, stop listening to mechanisms, stop paying attention to these pathways. Um, we need to look at the real world data. And I, I think definitely like my take is real world data, if, if it conflicts the real world data and outcomes in people probably outweighs a, a mechanism, but what if we don't have that data? Then, you know, is that the time to be considering those mechanisms? And, and have you, are you familiar with times where mechanisms, like you're saying a lot of times the mechanisms all pointed in the same direction. What do you do when you have a mechanism that says one thing and like data that says something else? How do you decide which to listen to at what point?
1: Exactly. Uh, what you described that person, whoever that person happens to be, it's, it's commonplace, of course. Uh, that's a classical illustration of uh, you know, what happens. When people make they try to argue whether for or against the mechanism, uh-huh. basically a topic of of conversation and and dispute because you got two different people making different interpretations. I think that the, I, I'm going to answer your question. I think this way: as we were going through, and I got excited about looking at this, that, and something else. You do a piece of research.
2: Mm-hmm. You
1: get the answer you thought you're going to get. Okay. It's sort of like it's standing exactly opposite what you are coming to believe. Uh-huh. It doesn't into the fabric. It's a thread out of place, <laughs> if you will. Yeah. And so, what that does for, for me is look more deeply. Is that really an exception or not? Mm. And that is so exciting because when you start looking more deeply, and whatever is being compared with, with what it does itself you start looking look more deeply and all of a sudden you get a new awareness. I'll give you a couple examples. Cholesterol, as we also know, the higher the blood cholesterol, more or less the higher the risk for heart disease. Okay, that's a given. Mm-hmm. If you compare lots of big population, lots of people, that's the way it is. It's almost a linear relationship. But if you start looking at one person and their cholesterol levels, it's, it's useful to know that, you know, their cholesterol levels can change, that's true enough.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I know of people who have very quite low cholesterol levels and had a serious heart heart attack. I know someone else who had a very high cholesterol and had no consequences of, of that. Uh-huh. In this case, this person had 140 milligrams per deciliter, which is quite low. But that person at 43 years of age had a heart attack. And I know someone else in the 300s. Wow, had problem. That was my mother. My mother, by the way. Okay. <laughs> and so. <laughs> Would, all of a sudden you say, what's going on here? This doesn't square with what we see in the population. Well, it turns out I got involved in doing some research that uh, was kind of happenstance. Why is that so? And what we turned up, and I published this in science, actually, it led to quite a lot of research. So it was serious research
2: uh-huh.
1: and I ran through the, the system. It turns out that uh, infant feeding early in life tends to program us all the way into adulthood. Oh, wow. My cholesterol will be. I haven't done really serious research going out and doing a survey of this, but I've certainly talked to a lot of people and got into some discussion about it. If it turns out that uh, that people have high cholesterol levels, I'm talking about myself. I'll, I'll, I'll go ahead and tell okay. you. Okay. My cholesterol level is around 175.80, okay? It's been as low as 155. That is not like the low that we saw in China. I said, you know, what's going on here? The, 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 well, it came back to the question of whether we were nursed. We wow. did some studies on that in experimental animals. We found exactly that: when they're programmed early on in a certain way, either in utero or just postpartum, uh, what what goes on there leaves an imprint for for adulthood.
2: Uh huh.
1: And so, if you if you, if a child, if a baby, infant is not nursed, it tends to end up with a higher baseline cholesterol level.
0: Wow. I had no idea
1: <laughs> that that's, the, that's the point, you know, you, you can get, I can give you other examples too, that they're sort of the same sort of way. Environmental chemicals, they cause cancer, mm-hmm. individual chemicals. We do, we spend hundreds of millions of dollars, you know, to find out which chemical causes what kind of cancer. So we find out, yes, we do a study in animals that yes, that chemical causes cancer. We see a tumor form and so forth and so on. But when you then go back and start looking at it in the human context, it doesn't work that way.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, and in large measure, because after that chemical comes in and causes a mutation in this case, yes, it, it can start the cancer, but the cancer doesn't form only because of that. Right. Cancer forms because of the, the control of the expression of the gene that's been corrupted or been mutated. So these these exceptions um, these exceptions are uh, very, very interesting parts of science because it really quite it, it first challenges your own beliefs and, mm-hmm. at first it makes you think you know think it through more carefully
0: that's a great yeah I mean so you see contradictory information and you think let's dig deeper
1: that's right <laughs> that's right or either and dig deeper and also get critique criticism from others hmm have something else to mark. Publish it if they allow you to publish it. And then you, and you can't figure it out. And then somebody else can come back and and challenge your thinking. Maybe maybe you just did the experiment, you know, in a crazy way, or something like that to get that result. Uh huh. So um, it's it's a good uh, it's a good exercise in science.
0: Yeah. No, that's a great. I, I like that approach. Um, I just see. Okay. Well, so let me ask you this. In with your colleagues or or who you're still talking with, do you hear a lot of the like pro science anti science talk? Like people calling certain things anti science or pro science, and uh, and what do you think about that?
1: You know, your your question is really good. Like I can tell you you were teaching <laughs> in high school. You do yeah. have it. These are good questions. Um, yeah, it it turns out that uh, science. And I have had to think about this on what recent paper I was writing. Uh, Science, for me, uh, is two kinds, probably more, but just (laughs) for the sake of argument. uh, I like to think of classical science, Mm
2: -hmm.
1: the philosophical construct of what science is. You make an observation. You can make any observation. If you want to believe something about that, well, I believe such and such, Then, but you you don't know. So then you do a study do some research, you form a hypothesis, the hypothesis can state what you tend to believe,
2: mm-hmm.
1: So the moon is made out of cheese. <laughs> say, That's okay, you can make a hypothesis. Right. And then so then, then you start testing a hypothesis in various ways, and in the course of testing, in the course of testing, you, be ca- you have to be careful to really document things as well as you can, but in the course of testing, finally you end up with something, you can maybe explain it, maybe not, you refute it or whatever, but then you submit it for review by by others, so that's the process.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So that's the classical science. Okay, right. It's one kind of science. The other kind of science is unfortunately what the majority of the people in the public, I think, tend to believe. It's I call it institutional science. Mm-hmm. Institutional science is that science which um, that institutions. And I'm, when I say institutions, I'm talking about industry. Uh, even research, professional research societies, academia, institutions, any collection of, of body of people, they come to believe a certain thing. They may all be wrong, uh-huh. all that a paradigm. So it may be wrong, but in any case, there it is. That's the institutional science. And that's what that is told to the public. Media spreads it all over the place. And in the case of uh, the, the uh, so the, the, the institutional science that, that I can understand, I don't accept, but I can understand it. Industry. Mm-hmm. Industry makes products. They make products, they make food products of all kinds. And then you say, oh, we got the science here. Yeah, There's science, this science, that science, everything else.
2: Uh-huh.
1: And incidentally no that, that applies to the vaccine program as well. Mm-hmm. Modern times. But in any case, institutions have their views, they have their biases. Yeah. So they, make, they make their opinions. Maybe they're selling something. You know, industry is selling something. As, as I say, I can understand it. They're conflicted. Right. They don't already know it. They're selling it and they look for evidence to support what they're selling. That's, wh- that's what it's all about, basically. Uh, and it's, it's the same thing with policy, too, which I have spent quite a lot of time in, actually, in the earlier years. Policy is made by government bodies that really is a it's just a it's a, a collection. It's, it's actually industry plus government.
3: Uh huh.
1: In fact, it's usually industry controlling government. You know, politically. So you have this sort of institutional uh, memory and institutional way of thinking about things. And they call it science. They call that science. It's not science. Mm-hmm. It has nothing to do with it. It's just only a selection of, you know, of something. That they're wanting to use for their own purposes. Maybe they don't even know what their own purposes are. Right. And so they just fall into the trap. And then that's what they hear. the public hears. Yo, scientists said this, scientists said that, you know, and usually broadcast. So much of that is, I call it institutional science. Yeah, it's a great way of putting dark, it. It's dark matter. It's, it's dark matter. Yeah. So,
0: how do you see? um, institutional science and reductionist thinking in science, how do you see that playing out right now with the pandemic?
1: Oh, yeah. Uh, well, the, the institutional science regarding the pandemic in this particular case uh, is that, that sort of proposes that the only way we're going to deal with, for example, these viruses, mm-hmm. let them happen. We'll discover. We'll learn something about them, and we'll make a vaccine. Mm-hmm. This is an automatic that's the kind of thing. Everybody sort of comes to believe that. To say otherwise, it's almost like being unpatriotic. Uh huh. So you know, and this in this world that we have now, and I think that's is one of the lessons we can learn from the present pandemic, is that to go back and start thinking about things a little more carefully, and, and 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 come to realize that you know that, everybody's now expected to say the same thing. Yeah. Well, necessarily think about it. just because the scientist says so. Well, then that's not scientists. Because the whole conversation, I, I can pick it apart going right along the way. It's it's just a, a popular way of saying something, doing something. And uh, so you can we can make a vaccine to get more specific. We make a vaccine, yes. We can t- we can create a vaccine. And as they could do that a little better now than what had been happening before with a messenger RNA, for example.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: It'd be quite specific you know, we can study the, the base sequence right. in, in RNA and type that out and, you know, create something to counteract that, et cetera. I mean, on the face of it, it's pretty good. It's, let's say it's pretty good testing, pretty good science. Uh-huh. And it works, you test it, it works in a short time, but that is so far afield from what nature would have us do. <laughs> you know, given the fact that in this case, to answer your particular question, Viruses are, are, they were around on this earth far before we were.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And they're part of the fabric, you know, of life on earth. And some would believe, and I believe they were sort of engines of evolution. Uh-huh. Some of them create nasty things. And occasionally some of them will create something that might cause that particular person or individual that, to survive. So you got survival of fitness, that kind of idea. Right. So, In any case, uh, viruses do a lot of nasty things, of course, but our bodies, since all the viruses in this particular case, when, when they're foreign, they're foreign, so when they infect us, we over time, as one species, all the other species do this too, we have our defense mechanisms, and that's called the immune system. Mm-hmm. And so the virus comes in. a Strange thing, never body never saw it before. But the amazing thing about the immune system is that it has the capacity to actually adapt. I, I can't quite figure out how that all happened, but the the, the immune system is, has an enormous capacity to adapt, and eventually figure things out and create some kind of immunity. Mm-hmm. Usually it happens all. There's one point it happens very fast. Maybe for the days, sometimes take a longer but uh, sometimes that doesn't always work.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But For the most part, it's pretty good. It's pretty good. So there's a case of reductionism. You know, they're they, they very focused on just one idea. You know, this particular virus is, we got to work with that. We got to make exactly the, the right kind of messenger and vaccine. Yeah. And, uh, and then maybe it doesn't apply. It doesn't apply to the next Newton of that virus. Or there might be another virus coming around. So, now, and so if we're going to follow this particular model we have at the present time, we're going to have to be sitting around making, my gosh, viruses are coming all the time. We can't predict what they're going to be. we got to just have a whole panoply of of a whole industry of uh, vaccines. Mm -hmm. And we have an industry waiting to do that. Yeah. We got to think differently it has to come back to the question concerning let's look at the whole Mm -hmm.
0: yeah i mean i had i guess in that vein one of the thoughts i had just in general um was like wondering this whole idea you know one virus one vaccine eradicate the virus i guess i was sort of thinking like okay we're learning more and more now for example about the microbiome and how we actually have lots of bacteria and viruses. Like we come into contact with and live with thousands of viruses every day. And, and sure, like the coronavirus right now seems scary and like it's causing a lot of harm, but I've had thoughts like, okay, is, is it a good approach to, to go about thinking like, let's eradicate this virus. Let's eradicate this virus. like. Like, does that approach have any unintended consequences that we may not know right now because viruses are actually really important to our microbiome? And, you know, is there some way that 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 approach could backfire in the future? Um, And and are we taking that into consideration when we're continuing down this approach of uh, uh, institutional science or reductionist thinking right now?
1: Yeah, you said well, I, I I wouldn't have much to add uh, because the microbiome itself is an enormously complex system. Mm-hmm. Uh, that that word, by the way, if you're familiar with this area, was uh, coined in about the 1990s. Uh-huh. Uh, actually, and they they when they came about at the time, I I saw I, I you know I followed it to some extent. They thought they had created a whole new domain of science thinking, scientific thinking, if you will, and had that word, microbiome, mm-hmm. fancy. Uh, and uh, really had to do with the microorganisms in our intestinal tract, right. you know, and, and all that mix. And then they were discovering too, microbiologists, uh, all the different tremendous variety of organisms that are there. And can, it's a great polar system quite frankly, uh, but they pretended that was the first time that we had run across that. They were wrong. And I come to find out that that really started as far as I'm aware, With a great deal of enthusiasm from the pharmaceutical industry. Really? Yes, I saw. I saw actually saw a reference, a a comment on that in the press. It was that pharmaceutical company said this, that, or something. They saw a tremendous opportunity, a whole new world of finding the organism that does this, that, or something else, and an opportunity to make a drug for it.
0: Wow, I mean that makes sense. I mean that's. That's the way I always look at things, and again, how I tried to teach my students was, if there's con- if there's conflicting information or if you're unsure about things, try and follow the money. Where is this coming from? Is there anyone or any industry that might have a bias or a reason to push this? And I was actually just, I keep hearing a lot about the destigmatization of mental health issues, which at face value sounds great. And something I agree with, like more people seeking help is good. And I was, I was talking with someone and we just did a quick Google search of some of the like mental health support groups or something. And really quickly it came up and I don't remember the name of the group, um, but it was one of these mental health groups that is getting millions of dollars in funding from the pharmaceutical industry. And I just—it was like I hadn't even considered that the idea that we should destigmatize mental illness might possibly have a drive because destigmatization leads to more medication, and that there could be a, a route for a bias there. And it just—it that one hadn't even occurred to me. Something that seems so good at face value um, being driven by potentially corporate profits.
1: That's right. That's right, the, as you probably know, I'm sure your mother knows this. she was a microbiologist, I think, in industry.
3: Uh-huh,
1: the pharmaceutical companies. I mean, I I've become the, quite a critic of the pharmacological concept if you. Uh-huh. Will. When I started my career, I had two uh, at that time, there were two societies I belonged to professionally. One was nutrition, the other was pharmacology. and, it, and I actually published some stuff. At the time, for uh, you know, on, on drug metabolism in particular, the pharmaceutical companies were interested to show what effect nutrition had on drug activity. And what I've come to realize that the drug industry is founded on the primarily is founded on the principle of targeted me- targeted mechanisms. Okay. Targeted drug therapy, as you probably know,
3: mm-hmm. so
1: identify uh, which. Which uh, reaction, if you will, or which enzyme, which gene, you know, is responsible for which outcome? And now we're going to make a drug, you know, to target that that thing. Mm-hmm. And that is largely what the pharmaceutical company is all about. It's very, yeah. uh, it's very targeted. Uh, the whole concept for the industry. Is, I have trouble with it because when that raises another question too, because if we make a so we, we see a reaction that we think that needs to be addressed, a gene if you will, even in, in that case maybe. Um, we make a chemical, so now we have to realize that, that the chemical, when consumed from in the body, it has to thread its way all the way through to that target without causing side effects.
2: Mm-hmm. That's,
1: that's not really possible. We can't even test for that in the beginning. <laughs> so all drugs really have side effects, right? That's, that's like, I don't know, that's ob- almost obvious. That's why drugs have side effects. They, they're they being targeted. Maybe they'll hit the target. We got some really pretty amazing uh, ability these days to make drugs, you know, according to the what we'd like to see.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: It's a target. Yeah, hits a target. What else does it do? And how long? And the body's going to fight back to get rid of it to begin with. So we all have yeah. this, this interplay going on, you know, that, kind of disturbs the whole equation.
0: So coming back to the the pandemic, if you were in charge of public health right now, if you were in charge of our, our government institutions that are dealing with the pandemic, what would you be telling people and what would a holistic approach to dealing with this pandemic, what would that look like through your lens?
1: Well, the first thing I really want to do, and I would do, uh, is basically try to educate the public about nutrition. And, mm-hmm. and, and I would point out, for example, I mean, this doesn't go right to the problem, but uh, I would say this is one of the big deficiencies that we have. And this is why we now have the problem. Namely, uh, doctors are not trained in nutrition. There's not a medical school in a country that teaches nutrition.
2: Uh huh.
1: So that's step number one. Take some time, but we just everybody needs to acknowledge that. They need to be trained better. Uh, the second thing is, uh, like our system demands, now physicians who choose to, they sort of get some understanding of this, and they want to do it. Uh, they got to be compensated for that, and there's no good mechanism now to reimburse physicians for the kind of those kind of services. Wow. So you know they're not trained in the subject in the first place. Secondly, they're not going to get paid for it. If they just decide, decide to learn something on their own. Okay, and then the third thing. Uh, I would organize at NIH, which funded almost all my research. Uh-huh. seven institutes there, and uh, they got one for heart disease and one for cancer and this and that. Uh, you know, kind of reductionist crisis centers, if you will. Uh, there's not one in there called the Institute of Nutrition. And I, I got deeply involved in that myself because I was on a study section that evaluates grant applications for priority. Uh-huh. Our job was to review hundred applications to see, you know that kind of stuff right uh, and i actually uh, uh, organized a new study section once uh, called nutrition and cancer okay and then the director of the institute invited me to give the special seminar for him and staff and, that's and awesome they changed they changed the name from nutrition and cancer to uh, metabolic pathology <laughs> and so i i that was one of the many occasions i've had you know to, to compete with or contest someone with that. And then, so the director sitting there at the time, his name is Sam Broder. I'll give his name because he went back to pharmaceutical companies. why uh-huh. did you change that name? He said, because we want to have nutrition in the other societies. I said, no, you don't. You're, you're just looking at nutrition, you know, one nutrient at a time. And this. I said, that doesn't work. He got quite angry and he got, he said, well, you, if you keep talking like that, he says, you can go right back up to Cornell and just leave right now. Wow. This is one of 14 of his staff. I said, if you would just sit there and just let me finish my conversation. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I just tell that little story because it, it demonstrated to me, and I went and finished and it ended up being a couple of hours. But what, what it demonstrated to me was the reluctance on people in power, with authority, of really acknowledging, you know, the, a role for nutrition, which is a holistic concept in my view. So even today, they don't have an institute of nutrition. Yeah. Oh, uh, so that's that's one thing I think. I'm sorry, that was a long one to tell. No,
0: that was a good story.
1: But that, uh, so they got to learn nutrition as a first, in the first instance, um, and then figure out some way in policy development, uh, inform the public that there is there is uh, something else that we might consider, mm-hmm. and that's the possibility of changing our diet. You know, and 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 to point out, you know. In, in good words and appropriately, but point out you know how this nutrition really work. It has a it has an ability, has this broad scope ability, this breadth of effect that is likely to address different kinds of groups of diseases. And we already have a lot of evidence that that's exactly what it does. And the formula is the same. It's the same for these different groups. So I would go on a big educational campaign I think to start with. I don't know about the vaccine thing i, I I haven't sort of that. One, one thing about the vaccine thing, um, I have to say this just for the record too. Um, I'm, not, I'm not inclined to want to tell people or insist on what people should do. If I'm in a policy position or, or that sort of thing, I don't like to demand mm-hmm. or, you know, coming out with that very almost dictatorial you know, uh, way of handling things. What people need to have is information so they can themselves make their own best decisions.
0: Absolutely.
1: And so at this point in time, what does the public know? They they hear about vaccines, all the great things that's going to do. And they then they, and some other people may not because for good reason, whatever their reasons are. So I don't tell a person what they should do.
2: Uh-huh.
1: I, th- I think the decision is, uh, is one that's precious for each individual real question is, how do, we, how do we get information out there? And right now, the, the president's system is ignoring, proactively ignoring, I have to tell you, a role for nutrition. And I happen to believe that uh, nutrition will play a role in that disease. We are, I don't know whether you know this or not. I just published a paper recently on another virus we studied in China. Did you know about that?
0: I don't think I've seen that. Mm-mm.
1: Well, this, this virus is more serious than the coronavirus. okay. It about 800,000 people a year, worldwide. And people only not know it because it began, they haven't been able to deal with it very effectively. It's hepatitis B virus.
3: Okay. It
1: causes liver cancer. And uh, so in China, we had collected information back in 89, in this case, the second time we did that study. We collected information on liver cancer, mortality, and we collect all kinds of nutritional characteristics. So we measured viral antigen, to the, uh, to the hepatitis as well as viral antibody.
3: Okay it
1: turned out it turned out the, the, uh, the people have the active of the antigen, they're the ones who get liver cancer. The people have obviously antibody they don't. It turns out with a number of different sort of factors that we assembled together it turns out that people consuming more plants in China uh, they're the ones formed antibodies.
2: Oh they wow! Liver
1: cancer. People who were consuming more animal food, and only small amounts of my add, only like ten percent, what we do in the West, they're the ones that kept the antigens. They didn't form the antibodies, and they went on and got liver cancer. Wow! So liver cancer is a function of the food. It starts by the virus, but then it's controlled by the nutrition. That's what we established in our animal studies too. Again, in that case, was a transgenic mouse model that was transmitting with the virus. So they all form liver cancer and the ones that get the liver cancer are the ones fed more animal protein. Wow. The animal model and the human studies that we got were the same. So I, I'm, I'm suggesting, that we have to be careful how to say this, uh, but I, I'm really suggesting that people who get tested positive for the coronavirus, they can actually, may very likely you can see some benefits straight off as they just immediately go into a whole food plant-based diet.
2: Mm-hmm. I know that's
1: a jump, that's a leap of faith. And people would attack me for saying such a thing. But the, the fact of the matter is we know that's true for heart disease and diabetes. People who are on a bad diet to get heart disease, who are really quite ill at the time, maybe, mm-hmm. they change their diets, their cholesterol drops like a rock in one to two days. Right. In the case of type 2 diabetics who are on medication to keep their insulin or keep their blood sugar down. So, those people, if you put them on this kind of diet and they continue on the medication, which is pushing the sugar down, the diet is so strong, it's both working together, people can go into hypoglycemic shock. That's how wow. strong the, the dietary effect is. Again, within a day or two. So, yeah. I think we have some evidence to, evidence to suggest. This nutritional effect is so powerful, not only because of its breadth of effect, but also because of its rapidity of effect.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, and I've I've thought that nutrition would be helpful, not even directly for COVID per se, but because we can look at the death rate and see that the people that are most harmed by COVID are those that have pre-existing conditions and comorbidities that we already know diet can affect. So if you change your diet and can reduce your risk of heart disease and diabetes, then that probably is going to reduce your risk of being severely harmed by COVID. I mean, that, that's already there.
1: That's right. That's there. And so this is the same thing. It's the same kind of diet. Yep. The, the diet that creates comorbidity opportunities is the same kind of diet that can be used to also Control the virus.
0: Have you had any luck uh, sharing these ideas with other people or public health officials?
1: Uh, yeah, that's what requires is some luck, to be honest. <laughs> about it. But I did publish a paper on just what I told you uh, in a journal. good journal. Uh, just put it out there. I didn't, and I did suggest, in fact, the title that you know. Uh, COVID-19, have we uh, nutrition, is, is there a link or something like that?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: that I submitted it first to a journal I had published in 50 years ago. A good journal. I'll, t- mm-hmm. I'll tell you what it is, it's nature. Okay. I have a lot of respect for nature. Very good nature journal. Now became a, big, a kind of conglomerate of a lot of nature-related uh, groups. I submitted it to them because I was kind of excited to be getting this published. -hmm. I have the. I'm not saying that's a hundred percent answer. I'm just simply saying that's why science says. Here's our data. Have a look. Right. They wouldn't even review it. Wow. All the hundreds of papers I've done, I've never gotten to a point where I was actually told to be in. They did not want to review it. Happened twice.
0: And did they give you a reason?
1: No. No reason. Just don't want to review it. Wow. That that's that's really dictatorial. That's really science being sacrificed uh huh, for the benefit of money. Right. I uh, so I, I got another journal that's sort of a, uh, I think they're affiliated with, with that system. A good, good name journal, so European Union uh, type journal. Okay. They did publish it. They did publish it. So and then, and now I can say, well, at least it was, at least it was published as peer review. Yes. Yep. And so now I'm uh, trying to write things for, you know, the popular press mm-hmm.
2: uh,
1: and I'm having difficulty to answer your questions. The, the press, the media, they don't want to hear this. They don't hear, the, hear about the idea that, uh, I think on two accounts, my guess, that's my interpretation. Uh uh-huh. The press tend not to want to hear about uh, the role of you nutrition, know, plant-based nutrition, that's just generally. Right, popular, you know, as far as the press is concerned, they, they do sometimes, but in this case, they didn't. And and the second thing is they don't want to hear an alternative to vaccination. Again, whether they vaccinate, vaccinate, whether people vaccinate or not, I, I consider that their decision. Mm-hmm. But I also consider it terribly important for the for the institutions to provide good information. Don't stack the deck.
0: Right. I've been told, and this is just online. Um, I shared some sometimes I'll share like a peer-reviewed study on my Facebook page or something. And I've had people tell me to stop spreading misinformation. And I'll be like, this is a a peer-reviewed study. Like, like it's it's just data. Like you can critique it, you can disagree with it, like, but how is this, you know, inherently wrong? And I have just gotten so much pushback from people. It's like there's this. There's just this level of fear mongering and you're not allowed to question the orthodoxy. You're not allowed to question the mainstream narrative. And if you even ask questions, no matter how evidence based, no matter if you're like, here's some data, here's a published study, it doesn't seem to matter. It's like you're crazy for even asking questions or wanting to discuss the data.
1: (laughs) That, That is it. Yeah, that's exactly right. And and I I hadn't seen this in my earlier years, probably because I was too naive
2: mm-hmm.
1: myself. But uh, on the other hand, I I think it's probably true. What I've seen here in the last, especially this last year or two, and and two years leading up to that, mm-hmm. uh, science has been so co-opted by the system. And you know now decisions are being made in the name of science. Sometimes
2: mm-hmm.
1: in the name of science. Um, we all know it's only in the name, it's only the adopting using the name, right? Of science and not really talking about science itself. That what you just said, your experience you, you put out something, you say, Okay, here's a paper, you say, just look at the data. Uh-huh. So, the, the, the correct response should be people say, Oh, really, where's where's that? Can I read that? <laughs> and then, if they have a di- dispute, you know, disagreement with what the study found. Was what your interpretation of it was? They come back and say, right? Yeah, you know, that's the way it's supposed to work.
0: And when when people are like, stop sharing this information, and I'll say, you know, well, I think people should be able to make their own informed decisions. I've had a lot of people basically tell me, um, most people can't think for themselves. Like we should just be listening to authorities. Like stop trying, stop confusing people. Stop. And I'm like, so are you basically saying? Everyone else is dumb, and we just need to listen to. and it's like i I will have these discussions with doctors or public health officials, too, but i I believe that I should be able to read information and make informed decisions. And I think everyone else should be able to do that too. and it's it's really shocking me how many people are just kind of appealing to authority. And and like, I don't know if you saw the article. um, there was one in The New York Times, and there was an article in Forbes, too that was like, don't do your own research. That's dangerous. Like the title of it was literally don't do your own research. And it was, yeah, I'll have to, I'll share that with you. It was, it was very disturbing to me because in the name of science, like the, the stuff I'm seeing is you as an average person, stop critical thinking, stop questioning things, just listen to the experts and do whatever they tell you.
1: That is so dangerous. <laughs> yeah, see, that, that's dangerous for our society. That's sort of like you know, if you go beyond the word of science, And one, one word I'd like to consider as a synonym for science. Uh, I saw it years ago it sounds a little bit, maybe a little bit arrogant. I, I don't know, but the word another word for science is integrity. Mm-hmm. I mean, they, they, they don't sound they're not supposed to be synonymous. I guess <laughs> well, I see them as being synonymous. True science is nothing more than an expression of. Really have an integrity to look at the facts as they are, and most importantly, being willing to accept appropriate criticism.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Of that kind of a change, because the facts are the facts. You know, we can interpret them in very many ways, oftentimes, but still, the facts are the facts. Two sides of an argument can decide whether or not those are reliable facts or not. I guess, and establish that. But then, yeah, that's the way it works. But what you're saying, that's really kind of scary. <laughs> you're, you're saying.
0: Yeah, it's I mean, literally, yeah, there was another one in The New York Times. It was don't go down the rabbit hole. And I think it basically says critical thinking, av- as we've taught people, is uh, really dangerous right now because people are basically questioning what we're telling them.
1: It's kind of sad in a way, because you know, in some ways, I, I suppose we could argue that uh, there's truth in the idea of don't do your own research. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> I hate to even say that. Uh, but but uh, the fact is the fact of the matter is the public is so unaware of what true science is and they're not able to to get into, at least up until recently, into the real science. Mm-hmm. So they and I feel really sorry for that. The system, it's not the people, it's the system that you know they're so uninformed. Why are they uninformed? Because they've been misinformed you know, for so long.
2: Mm-hmm
0: sad system we have
1: it's a difficult situation
0: well do you have anything else you would like to add to this discussion
1: no but the other thing it has to do with animal protein you know that's why i started my career i was in charge of a program in the philippines for the u.s state department actually uh, feeding malnourished children and that to me that's left that's uh, that's left an imprint on my mine ever since, I will tell you this, is sort of one of the reasons I got into this business the way I did. Mm-hmm. Because my first faculty position, I was at Virginia Tech at the time and I was teaching and doing research and so forth. But I also was asked to coordinate a program that we had off campus, funded by the State Department, uh, feeding malnourished children in the Philippines. And uh, I saw some things there that didn't square with what I had believed and what I had taught and what I, others taught me. Name of the animal protein is the be all and end all of good nutrition. If you right. Know. And uh, what I saw was uh, something that looked like it was the opposite. That's my starting point in research, I have to tell you, because I just sort of said to myself, you know, at that time, how can this be? How can, how can what I have seen, you know, be allowed to exist? We know there's social, you know, socioeconomic reason and all that sort of stuff, but the science stinks you know, when something like that comes along and they don't want to address it. And then and uh-huh. we end up trying to do things to those children. It's exactly the opposite of what they need. Yeah. So I spent the rest of my career on that protein question and finding out that <laughs> normal protein is not what we think it is. You know, I came from a farm, milk and cows, So I would, and that's where you get good protein from. So I was willing to buy into that. I was part of the same paradigm. It didn't work out that way.
0: <laughs> well,
3: it I think be,
1: that's
0: amazing <laughs> that you, uh, were able to see the data for what it was and adjust your beliefs.
1: Well, one, one thing that enabled me to do that, Serena, I, I must tell you, I want to make this mm-hmm. point. I had academic tenure and therefore I had academic freedom. And I, I actually got that now 50 years ago. So I've had a long time. I got it quite young.
2: Mm-hmm. And,
1: and so I was always in a position And there were times when people wanted to have me kicked out of the university and kicked out in formal investigations to have me this and that because I was... Wow. And uh, and say, uh, I wouldn't be here talking like this right now if I didn't have academic tenure. I think academic tenure is so important. The public doesn't hardly even know the concept. Right. Let alone support it.
0: there's a lot of professors right now in this era, the pandemic that we're seeing, they say anything that goes against the mainstream narrative and people try to get them fired. There's petitions going
1: around. And in many cases, they do get fired. Mm-hmm. You know, universities now it used to be, and I got real data on this, was uh, developed by the American Association of University Professors, I believe, AAUP. Okay. But it was a real study on uh, the percentage of faculty that are on tenure-track positions.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: they, the baseline was 1980. At that time, 70% of faculty were in tenure-track positions, right? 30 years later, 2010, 30% were. Wow. But now it's 10 years later. Now it's worse. And and, and it's not only just having, you being tenured, It's also getting the rank in the system, like full professor. They get associate professorship and then they would like to have the full professor. So they're still somewhat vulnerable. Then it becomes a question of what percent of the total faculty are tenure and full professors? In 2010, it was 9%. Wow. Now it's, I'm sure, less. And so <laughs> what universities have ended up with is relying more on adjunct professors and people like that who are hired for terms, mm-hmm. two years, three-year terms, five-year three terms five term maybe, and they can be dismissed. If they don't you know, toe the line on some system matters, you know, they get renewed. The public is paying a price.
0: Yeah,
1: very that's a very, term.
0: very important point. I'm glad you brought that up.
1: Yeah, sort of analogous to what you were just saying, the experience you had with social media, <laughs> actually exists in, in professional society. Circumstances too. Mm-hmm. Same sort of nonsense.
0: I'm all about that critical thinking and open discussions. That's that's what I like. That's what I think is important. And and I get nervous anytime I see any conversation being just blanket shut down um, around science because it's anti-science. I'm like, is it really? Or are people asking questions, which is what science I think is really about. <laughs>
1: You've had exceptionally good questions, I must tell you.
0: (laughs) Well, Thank you. I really enjoyed this conversation. And um, yeah, so thank you for joining us on the podcast. Great conversation, great information you have.
1: And just keep up your good work and your thoughts. You've got lots of years to do it. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you.